You guys can have a seat. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 will be our passage this morning. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they asked me if I, if I get tired during my own sermons, sometimes, ever. And um, at first it's a funny question, because I don't think I, I'm like yawning and sleepy, but yeah, you can get tired, I guess. Um, but I want to say it up front, because I know some of you guys are tired during my sermon. No hard feelings. We're all humans, all right? Um, do your best this morning and um, pull one or two or a few things from God's Word as we are in it this morning. I'm excited to look at what is basically the, the heart of our retreat in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and we'll begin by reading our text. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is the very Word of God. We've seen this weekend what it means to truly see Jesus. We looked at how truly seeing Jesus is seeking Him. And how truly seeing Jesus is beholding His redemptive work. And how truly seeing Jesus is following Him. And how truly seeing Jesus is looking to the reward that is Christ Himself. And then Riley helped us uh, so well yesterday to understand that we live in such a blessed and unique place in redemptive history. Uh, We see Jesus with full clarity and in full revelation. We've got the best seat in the house, so to speak. Now the question we come to as we end this retreat, in this uh, text this morning, as we go back to real life and we think about the next stage in life, whether it's graduation or it's just the summer for you, or it's the next season in life, the question we come to is, what do we do now with a vision of Jesus? Where do we go from here now that we've understood what it means to see Jesus and what it means that we can never stop seeing Jesus in His Word? What do we do with a hopefully clearer, deeper, refreshed, and renewed vision of our Savior? How does seeing Jesus more clearly, more appreciatively, more consistently, Lord willing, give us, how does it give us strength and grace to do what our passage calls run 
the race. We're on the race of faith. This passage has a conceptualization of our faith that is familiar to us. It's the race of faith. First Corinthians 9, Paul describes running the race. Second uh, Timothy 4, we are like runners. Is one of the three pictures he uses there. It's a familiar picture to us. Some of you guys are runners. And so when you read those passages, you think, should I sharpie that onto my shoes? Out of context, I go to Grace Church, I don't do that. But it's encouraging to you to think about the race of faith if you run. It's a metaphor for the Christian life familiar to us, but it's glossed over, to be honest, because we don't normally think of the Christian life probably as a race unless you're reading one of those passages. I think more often we think of our faith as the background or the culture that you grew up in. It's what you grew up with. You were born in the church nursery practically. In this season, now in college, maybe, hopefully, you're seeing what a great blessing it was to be born into a Christian home, that you learn the things of God, like Timothy did in the Scriptures, knowing God and knowing the things of God from a young age. But now in college, you're being challenged to make your faith your own. You're being challenged by God's Word in a real way for the first time. Maybe that's your conception of what faith is. Others of you, I think your conception of faith is that it's just honestly fire insurance. It's eternal life insurance for you. It's a policy that seems like the best deal ever. It's free. But because it's free, you feel some kind of obligation to keep it up. Others of you, maybe your perception of faith is it's some kind of camp you're supposed to be in it's a set of default positions you're supposed to align with Uh, you call them your convictions but they're probably somebody else's at least in some form and then other times you're not so sure you align with all of those positions in that camp maybe that's your conception of faith maybe for some of you guys Your faith is more of a rabbit's foot or a lucky penny kind of faith. You see, you see Jesus and you see all that He's done for you and then you have this expectation that because God is good and kind and compassionate and He's given you Jesus, so why why, why would He not give you all things with that, Romans 8? That somehow if you manifest, right? If you have faith good enough or you... Faith is a verb, you faith hard enough that just the right and good parts of God's sovereign will will spill out over into your life. You've got kind of a reformed prosperity gospel in your heart. And while there are shreds of truth in each of these perspectives, some less than others, we'll find this morning in our text a mere simple, uh, biblical perspective of faith. A perspective that will challenge our presupposed thinking about our faith in 
Jesus. Here in this text, the author of Hebrews wants us to see that the Christian life is a race. It's a marathon that requires some actual endurance. It's a race for which there must be actual preparation and strategy as to how you run. It extends beyond just the moment of salvation and is a lifelong endeavor. A race that is difficult, but a race that is worth finishing. A race worth completing. The race of faith. We'll see this morning in our text that the life of faith is a reality firmly fixed on Jesus. The life of faith is a reality firmly fixed on Jesus. We'll see three essential functions of a life of faith. Three essential functions of a life of faith. And the first, uh, we see in verse 1, it's that uh, the, the first essential function is run the race of faith. Run the race of faith. There are a lot of ideas packed into this verse here. But before we get into the weeds of what the race is like and how we must run, we must first understand, very simply, that we must run. The main clause, the main idea of this entire section is signified here like it often is in the Bible by the main verb. There are some other participial phrases and verbs in this passage, but the main verb in verse 1, and it's all of verses 1 and 2, the main verb is run or let us run. It's the phrase let us run with endurance the race that is set before us or sort of stripped back Just verb and object, let us run the race. You see, the race of faith begins by actually getting in the race. Like we talked about Saturday night, you must not only see Jesus and understand Him logically and intellectually, you must choose to follow Him. And that's not just a momentary decision. It's the choice to follow Jesus for life into eternity. When you choose to follow him, when you choose to enter the race of faith, you must actually run. You must actually use your feet, so to speak. You see, I think some of you have a bib number and you got the race day goodie bag Uh, but you have no intention of actually running the race. And that's my fear in college ministry constantly, is that we see this couple of years of your guys' lives, and it seems like you're getting going in your race of faith. But the question is, for all of us in this room, is if you will actually run the race of faith for life. Some of you are more of the spectator type. Let's let real Christians like John MacArthur run the race, right? I'll just kind of sit on the side, sip a body armor drink, looking like I run, sitting in the shade. 
It may be for you, I'm, I don't know, I'm just not mature enough to actually run and, and sort of get deeper in my faith. I, I've got to be fed a little more. I've got to learn more how to use my legs before I run. And some of you, it's your school or career sort of excuse. I'll, I'll get to it after I finish this quarter or my undergrad or whatever it is. And you're just sitting in the shade watching others run. Very simply, in this text, we see here, if you have faith, you must run. It's what faith is. It must actually be lived out. Faith is active. It demonstrates itself in action. Our favorite pastor, Austin, says it this way, faith is performative. Really, it's what we've been seeing over the course of our study in James this year. Faith is living. Faith that is real is a faith lived out. It's a faith that actually works. A faith that out of the abundance of the heart speaks and acts and lives. Our passage this morning comes on the heels of Hebrews 11. This, as you know, great display of the whole of faith. Uh, pictures and pictures of men and women who ran the race of faith before us. Flip back a page because you need to see this. Look at 11 verse 1 and you see the operating principle of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This faith, as we've seen this weekend and as Hebrews as a whole shows, this faith is in Jesus specifically. In verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Now they didn't have the full picture of Christ, but these people received their commendation. It's the word martus or witness. Commendation, having gained approval. It's the same word found in verse 39 of chapter 11. Look there. And all these though commended, same word, martus, through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And it's the same word we see in verse 1 of chapter 12, translated witnesses. You see, in chapter 11, this faith is shown over and over and over to act, to do that faith is this belief in and response to the promises of God and specifically that of salvation in Jesus. Faith runs, so to speak. Look at all the doing, all the running, how much action there is with faith in chapter 11. Verse 4, Abel offered a sacrifice. Enoch lived. Abraham obeyed. Sarah considered God faithful and received the ability to conceive. Verse 17, Abraham offered up Isaac. Uh, then Isaac invoked blessings. And then Jacob blessed Joseph. Verse 22, predicted the exodus. And then gave instruction by faith. Verse 23, Moses by his mother was hidden. And then verse 24, Moses himself refused to be called. 
And then verse 27, he left Egypt. And at verse 28, he kept the Passover and then sprinkled blood on the doorposts. Verse 29, the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. And then they encircled Jericho. Verse 31, Rahab welcomed the spies. Faith runs. So much, chapter 12, verse 1, running here in chapter 11. Now look at verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should, be made, should not be made perfect. So much running. All of these people, by faith, offered and obeyed and welcomed their way through the race of faith. These witnesses, these commended people, by faith, ran. They ran the race of faith. And so we are surrounded by a great cloud of these witnesses, these witnesses to the reality and the responsiveness of faith. And the author of Hebrews is saying it should help us with our race. You see, many people who have taken this passage, and maybe this is how you've taken this passage before, people have taken this passage and have said, Well, look, that's encouraging. The saints in heaven are watching us, cheering us on from the bleachers. Woohoo! Go, Matt! Yeah, run! That is not at all what the author of Hebrews is saying here. This is not about our race, it's not about what they witness in us and how they cheer us on and how we feel good because we hear clapping. It's about what we see in them as witnesses to the reality and the responsiveness of faith. It's what we see in them as the commended. And in chapter 12, verse 1, we see here in this verse and in their example that we must lay aside as we 
run this race of faith. We must lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, or some translations have that so easily entangles us or ensnares us. You see, in the first century, runners arrived to the race in ornate robes of rich clothing. But by race time, you're not surprised. You've studied ancient history. They ran entirely naked. Foreign to us, but we understand they literally had no weight added. For us, the modern version, this is the runner arriving to the race with the warm-up suit, inevitably Adidas, and changing from street shoes to running shoes, and then taking off that warm-up suit, and being ready, not holding a dumbbell in one hand or their phone in the other like you and I run when we try to run with a phone in our hand. No, no excess weight. No added weight. As we run the race of faith, we are to rid ourselves of any excess weight, anything that will slow us down, any hindrance or distraction. We see Moses' example in chapter 11, verse 26. Look there. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for or because he was looking to the reward. You see, Moses, in the viewpoint, the, the analysis of the author of Hebrews, Moses considered the distant promise that he had of a Redeemer, the promised seed, the deliverer of God's people. He considered that promise, the hope of that promise, far greater wealth than even Egypt's riches. Egypt was the, the most powerful nation in the world at that point. And Moses forsook those riches for the riches that was his hope in a Christ, a Messiah. I think some of you, you think, are ready to run the race. But you've come to the race and you've got a lot of stuff in your hand. You've got your arms full. And we're not even talking about sin yet. You've got a 10-pound dumbbell of a hobby in each of your hands. Others of you, you you've got a big box of used car parts because you're a, a car person. Some of you, it's a really heavy stethoscope or a video game controller. These are things I'm not saying you can't enjoy or pursue, but you've not assessed whether it is a hindrance to you running the race of faith. For some of you, what is holding you back doesn't weigh anything at all, physically speaking. It's your image on social media that's holding you back, or your reputation amongst your peers, or your dating relationship may be that hindrance at points. Maybe it's your summa cum laude that's holding you back and hindering you from a race of faith faithful to the end. And I would ask you this morning, what is hindering you from running the race of faith? What's hindering you? What is, in the terms of Philippians 3, competing 
with what should be the surpassing value of knowing Christ. What is to the treasure hidden in a field that is the Gospel? What is some fool's gold that you would rather have than that treasure? Or to the pearl of great price, what is that white plastic bead in your life that because you've held it in your hand for so long, you can't tell the difference between that bead and the pearl of great price that is the Gospel of Jesus? Let us lay aside every hindrance. This passage also tells us we must lay aside sin. We must not let sin even be named among us, Paul says in Ephesians. We must not be conformed to our former passions, Peter says. We must not be conformed to this world, familiar passage in Romans, Paul says that. We are to lay aside hindrances, but also that which God hates, and that is sin. I know there's some of you here, because it's college ministry, I know. There's some of you who have sin. You have sin that you aren't in this moment in your life, that you aren't willing to let go of not my clairvoyance or anything like that it's just the way that we are as a ministry there's people in this room i'm not trying to scare you i don't know something that you don't know in your own heart i just want you to examine and i know there's got to be people in this room who have sin they aren't willing to let go of you're probably hiding it or maybe you're not hiding it but someone's talked to you about it and you know it's wrong but you're still not willing to let go. You're not willing to lay it aside. You, you maybe say, that's, that's how God has wired me. Or that's just my burden or my cross to carry in this season of life. Well, God, through His Word this morning, is saying to you, repent, lay it aside, Turn from your sin. Lay that sin at the feet of Jesus even this morning. I've spent a lot of time this week reading. Reading about a race. It's a race that's a little bit quirky. It's fascinating. That's why I've read so much about it. This race is in ultra-marathon. It's called the Barkley Marathons, with an S at the end. Tim Ush has heard about it. It's a 100-mile race in Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee, and it's a race that was inspired by, modeled after, the attempted escape of James Earl Ray. James Earl Ray was the assassin of MLK Jr., And James Earl Ray tried to escape from the nearby Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, but was unsuccessful. Now this race starts any time from midnight to noon on race day. And the race starts uh, an hour from the time that the founder blows a conch shell. 
an eerie sort of sound that the race is going to start in an hour. Could be 2 a.m., could be 11 a.m. Just be ready. And the race actually starts when all the runners get to the front uh, by this yellow swing gate that doesn't allow people on the trail or cars on the trail. And in sort of an unfashionable way, they all stand by that yellow gate and the founder sits on that yellow gate and lights a cigarette. And they're off. This quirky and fascinating race consists of, of five loops of approximately 20 miles each. And approximately, because there's a lot of ups and downs in this race, extreme vertical climbs and descents, uh, approximately, for you runners out there, 60,000 feet of climb and descent in this race. Tennessee for you. And the course changes every year. Each runner's successive loop is in the opposite direction of the last one. So just when you think you know the course, was it the other way that this I saw this last time, or was it the loop two times ago that I saw this scene? You become disoriented in this race. There are no aid stations in this race besides two water stops, and along the way, just to mess with your mind a little bit, each runner's got to collect pages from books that are hidden in nearby trees or under rocks that correspond with their bib numbers. And the best part? You've got to finish this entire 100 miles. You can sleep however much in between loops you want, but you've got to finish all 100 miles in 60 hours or less. A grueling pace. In an absolute marathon of marathons. The Barkley marathons are set up for you to fail. Since its founding in 1986, the Barkley has been completed a total of 18 times by only 15 different people. So few have finished more than once. This is a fascinating and vivid picture of the kind of endurance we are to have. We are to run the race with steadfastness, persistence, faithfulness. We are to abide in this race. Now, you may not, by the grace of God, have a time limit. Or you don't have to sprint like these people do. You don't have to tear out pages from books along the way. But the race of faith is like the Barkley Marathons. It's why the author of Hebrews says, let us run the race with endurance. You see, you've got to know what's coming ahead of you in this life isn't easy. But it's set up for you not to fail, but to succeed. There is extreme vertical climb, but you've got to keep running. It will feel like you're running in loops and you won't know backward from forward, but you've got to keep running the race of faith. You're going to graduate, but you've got to keep running the race of faith. You're going to get rejected from your dream school maybe, and then get into your third choice, and then you've got to keep running the race of faith. 
You're going to lose your job and then get another one and then get a higher paying one. And you've got to run the race of faith fixing your eyes on Jesus every step of the way. You're going to get married and you might have kids and then you're going to get old. It happens fast. And you've got to run the race of faith. You see, this race of faith that is set before us is a race like no other. It's like the Barkley Marathons, but it is Barkley after Barkley after Barkley. And you don't know when it's going to finish. So the author of Hebrews is saying to us this morning, take off your warm-up suit. Put down your phone for once. Lay aside all that is not necessary, all that is competing with God, or all that is also contrary to God. And run, run the race of faith. Run with endurance because you don't know how long you've got left. But those who receive commendation in this race are those who show they have faith by actually running. If you have faith in Christ, run the race. That's the first essential function. The second, trust Jesus as the champion of a sure faith. Trust Jesus as the champion of a sure faith. So far, we've seen that very simply we must run the race. Here in verse 2, we see how we're supposed to run. The manner in which we are to run in order to win the prize. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Stop there. You see, we are to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We are to be looking to Jesus the whole time we are running. We are to have our eyes locked in on our Savior as we run this race. And we are not to lose sight of Him. The idea here is, look. the word is looking or fixing. The idea here is to direct one's attention fully on something. To block out distractions. And to focus solely on one thing. And that one thing is Jesus. Now, this is not speaking of His example to us. At least, just yeah, we'll get there. What I want us to see is that first, we must fix our eyes on Jesus, not as an example of faith, not as an example of endurance, but because He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see, we would be remiss to look at Jesus simply as an example. Only as an example. We must, in this passage, first and foremost, look to Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus because He is the one who established and accomplished our faith. He is the founder of our race, so to speak. This phrase, founder and perfecter, is reminiscent of Hebrews 3.1. Turn back there with me and just see that. Hebrews 3.1 says this, therefore, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, 
consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. These two descriptions of Jesus in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 12, verse 2, sort of bookend the epistle to the Hebrews. You see, in 3, verse 1, Jesus is the apostle or the sent one, a messenger of God's revelation. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we see that that message that the apostle Jesus has is revealed in Jesus's high priesthood, his high priestly work. And Jesus's high priestly work is twofold. He cleanses God's people from their sin and Secondly, he brings them into God's very presence as a priest. And so Jesus, in chapter 3, verse 1, is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then throughout the book of Hebrews, we see how that is all laid out. And then in 12, verse 2, after all that the author of Hebrews proves throughout his sermon, Jesus is, by his high priestly work, the founder and perfecter of a faith in which we can have access to God through faith. A faith that is sure and secure and sealed. Jesus, in Hebrews, establishes what the author of Hebrews calls a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus is the guarantor of a faith that is sure. Follow with me in Hebrews very briefly, and we just need to see a little bit more of this logic. Look at chapter 1, the first four verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, who He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiant of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, the apostleship of Jesus, uh, Jesus being God's latest revelation to a man, and yet here the author of Hebrews in the first few verses is saying, this prophet, uh, this apostle, he's different. He's different than all the others. Uh, this Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And so begins the logic of the book of Hebrews. By the very nature of who Jesus is, we have a faith that is sure. We have a faith that is steadfast. Look at chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest. Don't miss it. He is, in these verses, the Son of God. 
the Son of God Himself, yet one who, born as a man, is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And, and so while truly tempted, He did not sin. And so again, by the very nature of who our great High Priest is, we have a faith that is sure. We have a hope, a faith that is steadfast. Flip over to chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, just as God Himself uh, was the guarantee of His covenant with Abraham, this chapter 6 tells us we have a hope in Jesus that is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Jesus is a forerunner, uh, the one who paved the way in this race of faith. He's the trailblazer, so to speak. And He's gained us access to God. You see, before the curtain, the veil, prevented us from having access to God, but now in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the veil has been torn. And so we have a faith that is sure, a hope, a faith that is steadfast. In chapter 8, we see that not only do we have a superior great high priest in Jesus, we have a covenant in and of itself, the new covenant that is superior. Uh, Jesus, chapter 8 tells us, has a superior ministry that reflects heavenly realities, not earthly ones, and is enacted on better, clearer promises. We saw that yesterday. Promises of a clean heart and promises of entry into the presence of God. And so we have a faith that is sure. Uh, we have a hope, a faith that is steadfast. Look at chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 10 Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from, the time, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, once for all, won for us an eternal redemption. You see, we don't need, as Israel needed, a priest to stand there daily making sacrifices. Christ Jesus has paid it all and so we have a faith that is sure. But we have a hope that is steadfast. A faith that is steadfast. Look at verses 19-23 through 23 of chapter 10. 
And this is the push. This is the command. This is the, the direction that the book of Hebrews takes us. Therefore, brothers, since we have, a, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. You see, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Himself, has made the sacrifice of our sins and has given us confidence to enter into the presence of God. We're going to go back to the Barclay Marathons because we can. Because I read a lot about it this week. The founder of the Barclay Marathons is this dude. Some say, at least they think, he's 64 years old. His name is Gary Cantrell. His nickname is Lazarus Lake. It's like a rapper name. Call him Laz. He's a former distance runner. Emphasis on former. And a current, as you would guess, cigarette aficionado. He's as fickle and unpredictable as they come. This year, he started the Barkley Marathons three weeks ahead of the normal time. Normally, fittingly, it starts on April 1st. This time, second week of March. The founder has, because he founded the race, never been a finisher in his own race, obviously. And in his sweet but sick sense of humor in how he designs the Barkley Marathons, Laz wants you to fail. Our race, the race of faith, has a founder too. But our founder, our founder is a perfect founder, tempted like we are, yet without sin. He is the faithful, ever true Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is not out for you to fail. He is on our side. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He has established, and He will always maintain, by His own blood, the way for us through the veil into the presence of God. And so this, my friends, is a faith that is sure. And we run the race of faith. This is why in 12 verse 2, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus not first and foremost as an example of endurance, but because uh, He is the very uh, guarantor, uh, the securer of our race. We're to look to Jesus continually, daily, ongoingly. And Hebrews shows us we have every reason to be confident in Him. The very sight of Him encourages us, helps us, instills in us the sureness of our faith. And so as we run the race of faith, we are to look to Jesus. Finally and briefly, the essential function of the race of faith, of a life of faith, is follow Jesus' example of faithful endurance. 
Follow Jesus' example of faithful endurance. You see, Jesus is the guarantor of a sure faith, but he is indeed, as is obvious in this text, an example of faithful endurance. We have so many examples in chapter 11, a hall of fame of faith for us, examples of men and women who ran the race of faith before us. But Jesus, here in verses 2 through 4, is the supreme example. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, uh, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Here we see Jesus' example of steadfast endurance in the face of opposition. You see, not only did Jesus' work on the cross win our salvation, here in this passage, his faithful endurance en route to the cross is an example for us as we run the race of faith. He is what Hebrew calls our forerunner, our trailblazer, one who has paved the way. He has set the pace. He has shown what it takes. Verse 2 gives us a little more of the logic in this. Jesus regarded the joy set before Him. The joy of obedience. The joy of victory. The joy of doing the Father's will. Were to our Savior far greater value than that of His own comfort. Or His own desires. Or His own will. Or His own worth. And even His own life. Jesus, for the joy of honoring and glorifying His Father, endured the cross. And the author of Hebrews describes this here as despising the shame. What does that mean? Well, that is Jesus seeing the shame inherent to going to the cross, the human shame, the humiliation and the torture that would occur. Isaiah 53 describes it this way. Uh, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see, Jesus knew that he was to be despised by men. He was to be put to shame. And yet he still signed up. He despised that shame. He despised the despising. He considered that shame as nothing, no big deal, not worth comparing to the joy that was set before Him. And He is our example for the race set before us. And as Hebrews tells us several times, Jesus, after He made the sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, a phrase we've seen several times even as we've flipped through Hebrews. It, this is an act of finality, the signal of having finished something. An authoritative and honorable seat for the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then verse 3, an echo of the call to endurance. Consider Him. Consider that amidst all the 
beatings and floggings, all of the mocking and spitting, all of the unjust accusations and the unfair questionings. Jesus endured, endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. You see, He could have called upon His Father to send down 12 legions of angels. He could have justified Himself. He could have cleared His own name. But Jesus chose to bear our shame and He endured the cross. And so the author of Hebrews says, look at this Jesus. Consider this Jesus. That you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 4 is just icing on the cake and argument of greater to lesser. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see, if Jesus endured even the cross, even shedding His own blood for you, giving His life for you, running the race, obeying the Father, even to the point of death, how much more as we consider Him as our example can we run the race set before us with endurance? In closing, let's go back just one more time to the Barclay Marathons. The way to apply to this race, to get into this race, is to write an essay. An essay to the prompt why I should be allowed to run the Barclay. You're supposed to find out from other fellow ultra-marathoners where exactly to mail that letter. No one knows the exact address except people who have run it before. And if you're one of those lucky 40 who are chosen to get to run, you receive back in the mail from Laz a letter of condolence. Sorry, you got in. Runners are then required to pay an entrance fee of a dollar and sixty cents. Inflation included. And then you are supposed to send in a pair of Laz's favorite dress socks. Or other years it's a pack of camel cigarettes. Make sure it's insured. Whatever it is that Laz is feeling that year, he'll ask you to send in. And if you successfully jump through all those hoops and do all the right things, and all the steps are followed on race day, runners are required to bring a license plate from their state or their country that they're from. And all those license plates are hung up in Laz's garage. All this for a race that you are, in all likelihood, going to fail out of. The Barkley Marathons, for that kind of race, sure have a lot of entry requirements. The race of faith, the race we are called to run, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, has no entry fee, not even a measly $1.60. Our entry fee has been paid by the blood of Christ. It's all of grace. It's a free gift of God. And so as some of you enter that race and others of you actually start to run, 
and others of you continue to run, and as we all continue to run this race of faith for a lifelong endeavor, let us run the race. Let us trust Jesus, the champion of a sure faith, and let us look to Jesus for his example of faithful endurance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had in your word. This weekend has been a jolt of fresh energy for us to look to Jesus. And so help us, O God. We know it is only by your power that we will have the strength and the grace to finish this race. So Lord, uh, so many of us in this room have begun that race. Help us to actually run. And there are some who maybe even today need to consider whether they want to join in on this race. Wherever we are in that, Lord, give us much grace, we ask. We know it is by your spirit.